The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 3 this morning. If you haven't already turned there, I'll go ahead and invite you to turn there. Several weeks ago, I said it was Christmas in October at Omaha Bible Church because we were celebrating the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, that famous uh, birth narrative. And we're very confused about holidays around here because today is John the Baptist Day, which is actually a holiday in some other places. We don't celebrate it here, but it is John the Baptist Day. Um, I feel very unprepared this morning for John the Baptist Day. I, I look for something camel hair in my closet. I think I used to actually have something made out of camel hair. Maybe some of you have something, um, a sport jacket or a coat or something like that. I went for something kind of itchy. This is as close as I had to camel hair. Uh, I meant to forget to shave this morning, but I forgot to forget to shave. And so um, if you forgot to shave, maybe it's because you're celebrating John the Baptist Day. Um, but I, I, I'm not totally unprepared. I have one thing to celebrate John the Baptist Day that will just make it fitting and appropriate and maybe gross. Um, I do have here a box of crickets. Um, so they were fresh out of locusts, but I have some dried crickets. And uh, not only that, I think John would be pleased. These are bacon and cheese flavor. So... Um, so if any of you this morning are feeling your inner Baptist, if you really want to be a Baptist, uh, you'll do what John the Baptist did, and uh, you can eat some crickets afterwards. So see me after the service. Um, I'll be going to Jimmy John's um, because I'm not a Baptist, but if you really want to be one, uh, but you should know that there's um, one serving per container. It looks like there's about eight of them in there, and uh, that means nine calories, um, one gram of fat, 0.5 grams of protein. So that's pretty good. And there's even a graphic on the back you can look at that tells us where the wings are, where the breast is, where the drumstick is, where the flank is, and most importantly, where the rump is. Um, and then just to help clarify things, it is called the other green meat. So, crickets. I've not tried these. I did try the larvettes, and uh, barbecue larvettes aren't too bad once you get them out of your teeth. <sighs> Silliness aside, this is going to be our John the Baptist day. Um, not so we can focus on the John the Baptist, but in Luke chapter 3, the first 20 verses, John doesn't focus on himself. He wouldn't want there to be such a thing as John the Baptist day. Um, John focuses on Christ by preparing the way for Christ. And we would want to learn that from John today. Uh, if he were here today, he would say, focus on Christ, exalt Christ. Haven't you seen anything yet from my life? That's what I'm all about. Learn that from me. And hopefully we'll do that this morning as we see John prepare the way for Jesus. And so as we look at these 20 verses, if it would help you to have some sort of outline, we'll be able to highlight seven features of John's preparation. Seven features of John's preparation for Jesus and they're all really focusing on Christ. And then next week, we'll be there at Jesus' baptism. Next week, we'll hear uh, from heaven itself, God speaking regarding His Son. And all of this is in, in anticipation of that. I'll try to limit these to one word to help you to jot them down quickly. The first feature of John's preparation for Jesus is history. History is important to John, specifically to Luke, as he talks about John. Let's look at the first two verses again. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Why on earth does Luke do that? Why does he give us all of these things? Why is history so important when we're talking about John? History is so important when we're talking about John because history is so important when we're talking about Jesus. He's the preparer for Jesus and we're not talking about the faith that you have in your heart. We're not talking about the faith you have in faith. We're not talking about something subjective. We're talking about objective, real life, real time, real space, real history with John. And it's vital that we remember that because Christianity is a historic religion. Okay, it's tied, its validity is tied to history. It stands or falls based upon history. Jesus didn't come as the, the, the mighty spirit being in some sort of Gnostic religion sense. Jesus came, as the Bible says, in the flesh and dwelt among us. As John, uh, not John the Baptist, but the other John says, and we beheld his glory. We, we saw him. John even talks about, not John the Baptist, but the apostle John, that we, 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 we handled him. We touched him. Real person. Why is that so crucial? So crucial that your pastor always emphasizes it anytime he has an opportunity to. It's so crucial because we're real. And God is real. And we really have offended this God with our rebellion. And so we need a real Savior who is really one of us to really come here and to really fulfill the law and to really go and die an atoning death and to really physically rise from the dead. Luke, as he's writing, considers history very, very important And we have John the Baptist, a historical figure, as odd as he might be, tied to real time, real space, real history. It's so ironic that when Bible deniers, uh, naturalists, anti-supernaturalists, people who are out to get Christianity, talk about this Jesus that they've made up, that they call him the historical Jesus. When you hear the phrase or the statement, the historical Jesus in our day, you can know that you smell a theological liberal. You're talking about a naturalist, a a Bible denier, a denier of, of the Bible's Christ. How interesting, the historical Jesus as opposed to the Jesus of faith. Well, Luke is trying to make it clear to us that when we're talking about John and when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the historical Jesus. Real time, real space. The historical Jesus, let me put it this way, is the only Jesus who is worthy of your faith. The Jesus of faith. If he's not really real, go watch football. Do something else. It's no use. 
We're thankful that, that he's tied to history. It's a, it's a key feature of John's ministry because it's a key feature of Jesus' ministry. Now, I'm going to invite some of you to pay close attention. And I'm going to invite some of you to take a little nap. Okay? Um, I'm going to do what I normally wouldn't do. I, I have a page of narrative I'm going to actually read to you from a book. And so that makes me... I might fall asleep while I'm reading it. Okay? But, but some of you are, are more interested in these things than others. Some of you say, just move on with things. Uh, but I think you might appreciate if I do take the time to, to, to read just a little bit of the complexity of what was going on when Jesus was on earth, leadership-wise, in the area, and what was going on when John was alive, leadership-wise, in the area. And if nothing else, you won't remember most of this. If nothing else, you'll appreciate the complexity of things and the significance of what Luke is doing. He's giving us the real people who really matter to us. So just, mem- rem- just remember <laughs> that uh, you can go to sleep if you don't care, but I am going to wake you up. Here we go. Tiberius ruled this region from a distance so that the effect of his reign was present only through the governors and others under him. Tiberius inherited his governmental system from Augustus, his stepfather, in AD 14. Tiberius had been an effective general but withdrew and pursued academic studies in Rhodes when it appeared that Augustus was grooming the son of his daughter, Julia, as the next emperor. Follow me so far? (laughs) When that son died in battle, Tiberius quite logically became the heir. The empire was divided into imperial provinces directly under the emperor's care, for example, Syria and Galatia, and senatorial provinces under the care of the Senate, for example, Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. Rulers in these regions were either legates, military men in charge of the army, or prefects, also called procurators, administrative financial officers in charge of collecting taxes and keeping the peace. Prefects were usually of lesser stature than legates. Pontius Pilate was a prefect. Not even close to done. Sometimes rule was shared with regional figures who had developed a good relationship with the emperor. Such had been the case for Antipater, the grandfather of Herod Antipas, who ruled Idumea from 63 B.C. to 43 B.C. and was accorded a function like that of a prefect in 55. Antipater had received authority to rule from Julius Caesar for helping the emperor suppress a rebellion in Syria. Thus, in Judea of Jesus' time, Herod Antipas ruled Galilee and Perea as Tetrarch from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. He was a third-generation ruler of a family with deep ties to Rome. His father, Herod the Great, king from 37 B.C., quote-unquote king, from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., ruled a vast region that encompassed much of what had been ancient Israel. Herod the Great rebuilt much of the city of Jerusalem and started the restoration of the Great Temple. Education and economic vitality came came to the region, intermixed with bouts of internal unrest. But with his death in 4 BC, his kingdom was split among his three sons. Familiar names in our text we just read. Archelaus, the eldest, received Judea and Samaria until his banishment in AD 6. He died in AD 18. There's going to be a test afterward. (laughs) Herod... Antipas inherited Galilee and Perea, and their benevolent half-brother, Philip, received the northern Transjordan area. Technically, they were all tetrarchs, or in effect, regional rulers. With Archelaus' banishment, 
the governing of the region became the domain of a succession of Roman prefects, but wise policy required that the prefect cooperate with his Herodian neighbors and to be sensitive with his predominantly Jewish subjects. John's ministry stepped into this complex political situation. End of quotation. You don't have to wake up quite yet. There's two other guys on the list that are complicated, and those are the priests. He says that there's Annas and Caiaphas. They're not political figures. They're Jewish religious leaders, but there's, there are not two high priests during this time. There's actually one official high priest during this time. Annas had been high priest from 6 to 15. After a few short tenures uh, of other high priests, Caiaphas, Annas's son-in-law, came to power and remained there until 36. Thus, Caiaphas was the formal high priest during this time. But in actuality, the reason he names both of them is because in actuality there's shared power. It may well be also that Annas, though not officially in office, retained the title for life, such as an American president or a governor would do. Okay, wake up your spouse and your parents and your kids. We're done with that. I gave you a mouthful, page full, just to say Luke is being careful to name the relevant leaders. Luke knows what he's talking about. It is historic, and it's important that it's historic. The next time I read that text, I'm just going to breeze right through it. Actually, I won't because it'll be next service. But other than that, but there's a time and a place for saying, who are these people? Luke didn't fall asleep at the wheel explaining who was in charge. But I think he's doing it for us to see the historic side of things, but he's also doing it so that we might understand that it's a complicated time. It's a time of unrest. It's a time of conflict. History matters because we are in history. Number two, a second feature of John's preparation for Jesus is revelation. We've had four centuries of silence. God has not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. So we're waiting, 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 waiting. And then in verse 2 at the latter part, it says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It's meant to be forceful. We've had quiet. And then the word of God came. Divine, unique, special revelation. We're not meant to see John as normative like everybody else. In so many ways, he wasn't like anybody else. And God speaks to him like he spoke to other prophets who typically weren't like everybody else. It wasn't like this was a normal, ongoing thing for all Jewish believers. This is extraordinary. He's a prophet of God, and it came, the word of God came to him. Direct revelation to him. He's not some, Luke doesn't want us to see him as just another ambitious preacher from the desert. God's word came to him came to him in the wilderness. Well, historical detail, but it's also interesting that the law of God came to Israel when they were in the wilderness. It's also interesting uh, that John was called when he was in the wilderness. Maybe it's also interesting that Jesus spent his time alone when he was in the wilderness. The significance being perhaps it's where God had worked before uniquely, historically. Then skipping verse 3 just for a moment, let's go ahead and see something else about Revelation. Now he's going to tie this new Revelation to ancient Revelation. And John, look at verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. That would be chapter 40, a popular chapter if you're familiar with the Old Testament. And if you're a learned Jew, 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, it says. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. You can pause there just for a second. We've heard that quite a bit if we've read the gospel narratives very much. Make the paths straight. I've even referred to it before in our Luke series. This is what you do when the king's coming, when royalty's showing up. It's time to call the street workers. It's time to pick up a shovel. It's time to, 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 to clean things up. Make the road straight. Make the road. What's interesting is make the road righteous because righteous means straight. Well, he's using that image from the physical world, getting ready for royalty. And he's going to end up calling. John is calling for people to have their hearts right, to be right spiritually. Make your way righteous. Get ready. This was called for by ancient revelation from Isaiah. And now it's being connected to Isaiah. The prophet verse five then says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. Verse six, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah spoke of something greater than, than, than the deliverance of Israel in the temporal sense, in the temporary sense. Oh, sure, he talked about some of those events as well, but he talked about something greater, and Luke is making sure to emphasize that here, and he's connecting the dots for us, showing John is that guy. Go back and read Isaiah 40 a little closer is what he's saying. And you'll see that it wasn't about Israel's temporary kind of deliverance. There's something about God's ultimate great salvation in view here. And John is the guy. Revelation is crucial for this. Just look back at chapter 1 verse 76 and see that as instruction is given to John's father, he is told ahead of time that he is the one. In Luke one seventy six, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Here's our important statement. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That's with anticipation of Isaiah 40. Revelation is crucial. Not only direct revelation to John, but John's place in Revelation history because of the Isaiah 40 passage. He is the one we've been waiting for, that we've been anticipating, because he will point us to Jesus because he makes the road straight. Make sense? Let's keep going. A third feature of John's preparation for Jesus is preaching. It's preaching. We see this in verse 3. So back to verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming or preaching, as some of your translations might say, same idea, proclaiming or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came significantly preaching. Preaching is important in, in, in his ministry because preaching has to do with authority. We just saw in verse 2 that it's the word of God that came. So there's the source of the authority. And so what does John do? He doesn't come sharing ideas. He doesn't come doing philosophical interchange. Because the word of the Lord came to him. He preached. He proclaimed because he's not an opinion sharer. He is a prophet of God. And so he's making authoritative declarations. And it's anything but prideful. Oftentimes preaching is associated with pride and preaching should be associated with pride if you're not talking about preaching God's word. 
But he's received the word of God, and so it would be arrogant for him to do sharing interchange. It would be humble for him to say, this is what God says. He's heralding. He's representing another. And so he has his authority, John does. He's a preacher. Not his own ideals or ideas, but he's preaching the word of God. Verse 2. Preaching is also important for John because with preaching, typically you're going to have an emphasis also on explanation or meaning. And John gives meaning to his baptism. He's called to baptize, but he doesn't just call to, to, to baptize and leave it up to anybody to understand what he means by the baptism. He's John the Baptist. That's what he's known for. But he's also known for explaining what he means. Why should people be baptized by John? It's even odd the way he says it. Um, proclaiming a baptism. He's preaching a baptism. It's purposely odd. John comes not preaching a baptism. How can you preach a baptism? You can't preach a baptism. You, he, he's baptizing people. But he comes preaching a baptism because he's explaining a baptism. Why should you come out into the wilderness and be baptized by me? Well, because of sin, he explains himself where he says uh, baptism of repentance. So, so it's tied up with repentance. This baptism is for people who are repentant. People who, are, who, who, who acknowledge and are willing to acknowledge their thinking is wrong regarding Messiah. Their thinking is wrong regarding God. Their thinking is wrong regarding salvation. And so his baptism that he's preaching or explaining is a baptism of repentance. And notice that is tied to the forgiveness of sins. Re repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's proclaiming. He's explaining himself in preaching. This isn't for the good people who don't have any needs. This is for the people who are sinners who need to be forgiven, which then calls for repentance. And so if you come to me to be baptized, you need to know what you're getting into. And it's not just water. There's a reason behind this. So preaching is crucial for him. God salva God's salvation is coming. Jesus is coming how do you get ready for that you repent of your sins and you experience forgiveness baptism there was meaning behind his baptism be ready be ready i don't want to take away from john's baptism at all i'm going to be really careful about that but let's at least acknowledge that Whatever this, however important this baptism was, it wasn't ultimately important. Okay? Don't take this out of context. It, it's not ultimately important because John himself is going to go on to explain that it's not ultimately important. So whatever it does, it doesn't do anything ultimate because Jesus has a greater baptism. It's important that we at least see that. There were numerous baptisms back in the time regarding uh, around this time. The Jewish people were fanatical about cleansing. I've said this before. I'll mention it again. If you go to the Middle East today, you go to Israel, you're around Jerusalem. There's all sorts of these what we might call baptistries. Um, ancient ones, the ruins. You see these things all around. You walk down in the stairs. 
but you don't come back out of those stairs because then you would go back to your uncleanness. You go down in the stairs and then you go up other stairs. And so there was all kinds of ceremonial washings and cleansings. I just read some commentators say there, was, there were no baptisms and thought that was kind of odd. Um, that doesn't really fit historically. There were. But this one is not left to interpretation because he's preaching. He's explaining what he means. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Get ready for Jesus. Get ready for him. A fourth feature of John's preparation for Jesus is confrontation. Confrontation. He's, first of all, he's confronting the people. Look at verse 7 where it says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And I'm just going to insert something just real quick. Matthew 3, 7 would help us to understand with a, with a particular gaze on the leaders. So all the people are coming, but if we put the gospel narratives together, he's, he's, he's got the laser eyes on the leaders. You brood of vipers, you, you, you poisonous, destructive snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is for repentant people. This is for people who think they're sinners and need to be forgiven. They're repentant. And, and who in the world, why are you here? Self-righteous, pompous people. you doing here he's in confrontation mode he's confronting them especially the leaders he confronts them for their actions or their lack thereof look at verse 8 bear fruits in keeping with repentance you talk a big talk and you want to come out here and be baptized by me and you 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 say you're belonging to God and you say you you are all of these things but I want you to prove it by having fruit that keeps with your repentance that is consistent with your profession repentance literally means a change of mind Okay, you say you have a change of mind. Your thinking has been transformed. Your thinking has been changed about who Jesus is, who God is, who Messiah is going to be. You say that. Now it's time for action. Your actions should reflect your thinking. You should not just talk a big talk. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says to them. That's very confrontational. He confronts them for their religious heritage or their reliance on their religious heritage in the latter part of verse 8. Look there with me and you'll see. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. How about that? This guy is going to get himself in trouble. He does, right? He's not winning friends and influencing people, right? I mean, this is John the Baptist wilderness seeker service kind of thing. He's the greatest man who ever lived, Matthew eleven eleven says. And what does he do? He's confronting. He's confronting. Don't even go there, he anticipates the objection. Don't even say that, well, you know what? We're children of Abraham, children of the covenant. Don't even go there. I mean, this in our day, this would be like, don't even tell me you're a Christian. Don't even tell me you grew up going to church. Don't, don't even tell me you were baptized. Because in this conversation, that means nothing. Because he's going for their 
hearts. He's going for where they really, truly, genuinely are spiritually. And obviously it's offensive. But the one who is sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord, to make the paths ready and right for Jesus, is the one who does this. He's got to be confrontational. And he is. He is. Verse 8 then says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to to raise up children for Abraham. I don't think I like that guy. You know? He didn't make me feel very good. Let's kill him is how it's going to end up being. Confrontation in light of judgment comes in verse 9. And now, notice the, 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 the time element. This is, this, is a, this is urgent. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And who uses that kind of imagery later? Jesus does. Jesus does. He's confronting in light of judgment. And you could say, man, that guy is one mean, bad, evil hurting people kind of guy. Or you could say he is gracious and kind and loving because he's saying, you know what? Even now, the axe is at the root. You need to truly, genuinely repent, which will show itself in your fruit that is keeping with repentance. Don't, don't you know? I'm not the hate preacher guy. I'm the truth teller guy, but it means confrontation. And I don't want to make this about us, but we can certainly see as we live on the other side of the cross and try to point people back to Jesus, so to speak, you, you, you can kind of feel your heart kind of warming to John. You know, if you, if, you, if you can't tell people about their sin, you tell them about a Savior, and the Savior that they're going to end up believing in doesn't make any sense. He ends up being some sort of idol. And John is trying to clear the way for that. So there's something that we really are drawn to. It makes us want to eat bugs after the service. We're like, I I think I do want to be a Baptist. And if you weren't here at the beginning, you're totally confused about what I'm talking about. But he's confronting. Number five, a fifth feature of John's preparation for Jesus is law. Is law. Look at verse 10 where it says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And we'll talk about what that means in just a second, uh, theologically. But uh, to begin with, he just says, you know what? If somebody has a need, they need underwear, (laughs) give them some underwear. Give them a tunic. They need food, give them food. Then verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher. So they're respecting him. That's a, that's a title of respect. Uh, he, he's, t- he's touched a nerve. What shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And I won't read a long quotation, though I have it in my notes. Maybe it's a threat. Um, there's a layer upon layer of taxation and corruption and complications that would correspond to the layer upon layer of complication of leaders because everybody needs to somehow make a buck. So even some tax collectors are saying, so so what should we do? What does it look like for us to have fruit keeping with repentance? Verse 14 says, 
or, or excuse me, uh, he, he answers him, uh, excuse me, verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then verse 14 says, soldiers also asked him, what, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages, which we can understand what he's saying there. But there's a good way to summarize all of those verses. Verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, with one word. The law. He told them to keep the law. What does the law say as it relates to your neighbor? Love your neighbor. It's all he's doing. Keep the law. Leviticus 19, verse 18. If you want to go to the New Testament, Galatians 5 14. If you want to hear from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew 22 39. These are the things God would say to do. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do things along the lines of what I say, you'll be loving your neighbor as yourself. They need clothing, give them clothing. They need food, give them food. Don't oppress with charging more taxes than is required. Don't manipulate people because you're a soldier and you can get away with it and get money. Love your neighbor. Love your fellow image bearer. In other words, keep the law. Do what God says. And think of this in terms of if, if he's speaking to people who are believers, well, they're going to want to do the law out of obedience to God, out of gratitude, right? This is the fruit of them belonging to God. They want to do the law not as a way of earning salvation. They want to do the law because they want to do what God says. It's honoring to God. This is how it is for you if you're a Christian. You want to follow God's instruction. But if they're unbelievers... He's also going to preach the law. Do what God says. This is what Jesus will do in Luke chapter, uh, we'll see it in Luke 10. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to summarize Jesus from what he says. Do the law. Well, Jesus didn't do that so he would fail an evangelism 101 class. He did that to show them their desperate need. To an unbeliever, you start with, well, keep the commandments. Do what God says. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, do this and live. And we all know that that's impossible. But what it does, the weight and forcefulness of the divine law is, is by God's grace. It can break you. What shall we do, sir? Just do what the law of God says. Oh, no. I don't. So either way, he's getting them ready for Jesus. He's getting them ready for Jesus because if they're believers, they would want to live for his honor and glory and the honor of glory of God. If they're unbelievers, he wants to put them under the weight of the law of God so that they can see their brokenness and their inability so that they might be ready in that sense. Just so that they would trust in the perfect law keeper whose name is Jesus. John most certainly preaches the law to these people as Jesus will preach the law to people not as a way of salvation but if you will a way of desperation or leading to desperation or if a believer gratitude and we'll come back to that in just a few minutes a sixth feature of John's preparation for Jesus is defection 
defection. Excuse me, that's not the right word. Deflection. Deflection. By the way, I, I, I just had to upgrade to a bigger print Bible. So I use this Bible during the week that's a small Bible. And then every Sunday I switch to this big leather one with center column. Because during the week I've started wearing reading glasses. Um, and it all goes downhill at 43. It's kind of how it works for me. So, and now I'm having a hard time reading my notes. Um, who knows what I'll be up here with next week. Flip charts. Anyway. <laughs> I better just maybe get some glasses someday. But I just want you to think I'm so sincere when I squint my eyes and look like this. <laughs> you say, why do you keep looking at me, Pastor? Hey, I can't see you. <laughs> Actually, eyesight is still good. It's just the small stuff. So those little, those little numbers, man, they're tough going. Deflection. Not defection, okay? There's going to be defection too, but let's not go there. Deflection. In other words, he gets the attention and he, and he deflects it. He pushes it away. It's not for him. It's for Christ. And we see this in verses 15 and following. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And this is pretty interesting that this is happening in their hearts and somehow uh, he's made aware of it. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be his housemaid. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. With a view toward Acts, I think, is what's happening here. Remember, Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. It's volume one and volume two with the Holy Spirit. And then also, that's the positive side, the negative side, and fire. And I just can't help myself but to just interject before verse 17. I always get a, I don't get a kick out of it. It kind of disgusts me when people are like, have you had the baptism of fire? You know, people on TV, they're oh, we, the Holy Spirit and, and the baptism of fire. Oh, pray for the baptism of fire. You know, I think in the context, the baptism of fire isn't something you want. I might be wrong. Maybe it's Acts 2 with the cloven tongues of fire coming down, but I don't think so. Jesus, who's greater than me, is coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what you want. That's the salvation side of this great one coming. But he will also come as judge and he will baptize with fire. This isn't a positive image. This is a bad image. He's much greater than I because he is the sovereign judge. And he goes on to verse 17 to confirm my suspicion, his winnowing fork. That's not a positive thing. And that's associated with the fire, it would seem. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Notice the, the urgency and the readiness, as we already saw, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. That's the positive. But the chaff, the useless part, he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is definitely fire and brimstone kind of preaching. He's coming and he's greater as they would take the wooden fork and the, the windy spot and they would throw up the wheat and there would be separation because it had been crushed and the bad stuff is blown away and then gathered and burned. That's how it's going to be with him. 
So don't be drawn to me as this great guy, as the Christ, and, and don't develop a personality cult around me as this great one. I am John the baptizer, the bug eater guy. The sovereign Savior who is also judge is coming after me. He's the one. He's deflecting the attention away from himself, pointing it to Jesus. Once again, I can't help but say there's application here for us, though we're not John the Baptist. That's the right, that's what the greatest man who ever lived did. He points the attention away from himself. A seventh feature, and we're looking at eight of these. The seventh feature of John's preparation for Jesus is gospel. Gospel. I said earlier when we said law, we'll come back to this, and now we see the other side of things. Gospel. Verse 18 says, So with many other exhortations. So he, he, he's saying so much more than is recorded here. We can look at other texts and, and see a bit more about what he's saying there. But so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. As the New American Standard translates it, gospel or the gospel. Which is fitting because that's the Greek word that he uses there. Translated in the ES, the good news. John didn't only preach law. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Which will never ultimately make you ready. It will crush you. It will make you ready by crushing you. But he also preached the gospel, it says. Now, it was the gospel in anticipation, but it was the gospel nonetheless. Remember what John says uh, in, in speaking of John the Apostle, John 1, 29 records him saying, John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the atoning sacrifice. That's a gospel kind of statement, the kind of statement that John could have been making as he's telling all these other kinds of things, as he's exhorting them in all kinds of other ways, and he's telling them the gospel. The gospel, the hope is in what he will do for you. The hope isn't in your law keeping. John preaches the gospel. He preaches the good news. He makes an announcement about the work of God to be done in Christ. Remember the word gospel is the word for herald. It's, it's what you think of, you should think of when you think of a news teller. It's not about what John does. It's not about what they do. It's a declaration. It's an announcement about the good news, about something someone else has done. And John, even in anticipation, is saying, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. And he preaches it to him. It, it, it makes my mind go back to chapter 2, verse 30, where Jesus is referred to as God's salvation. The salvation of God. This is something God does through Christ, not something we do by being nice to our neighbor and giving them what they need. As important and right as that is, ultimately we won't do that, and so we need good news about what God has done in Christ. Eighth and lastly, an eighth feature of John's preparation for Jesus is hostility. Hostility. We have this recorded here for our edification. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and for all the evil things that Herod had done. So he has this unlawful marriage with his brother's wife. Added this to them all. That he locked up John in prison. Fascinating, huh? Fascinating to read verse 20 in that kind of hostility. The evil things he had done, it was an evil thing for him to lock John up. Why? Well, John told the truth. John preached the law of God to Herod. Herod hears the law of God and says, no. Shut him up. And he locks him up. It's also an evil thing because of who John is. The very one who had been promised even as far back as Isaiah the prophet. I mean, he is the one. And Herod says, shut that guy up. What? He's the preacher of good news. He's the gospel preacher. And hostility characterized his ministry and he will be the one who will lead the way for Jesus who will be the gospel himself. And we're just getting ready for that. It'll be far more severe for him. Well, all of this happens so that we're ready to see heaven open up and to hear, not only to see that next time, but to hear God the Father's voice coming from heaven saying to the Son, You are my Son. In whom I am well pleased. And we can look forward to that. Because we need him to be the one that the father is pleased with. Because he is our representative. Our savior. And we need him to be the perfect one. With whom God is well pleased. So that he can be our righteousness. And so we'll look into that next time. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the anticipation that is ours, even in our studies. But thank you that this can be more than a study for us. Thank you for the, for the reality that Jesus Christ himself speaks to the congregation, as Hebrews chapter 2 says. That, that while we might not have much in this world, we have Jesus speaking to his brothers speaking to his spiritual siblings by virtue of his redemption, speaking to the congregation about your goodness and about your perfect works on our behalf. And we're grateful for that. And we're grateful that we, we can hear from Jesus encouraging us through his word so that we might know him and love him more. Thank you that our hope is not in ourselves, but in him. May we find ourselves imitating John the Baptist in the sense that we see Jesus as the point of everything. In whose name we pray. Amen.